Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8, but I'm sure we're not going to finish verses 1 through 8 this morning. Revelation chapter 1, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would please be with us in this day, that you would uh, focus our attention onto your word, that you would give us an understanding of it. We thank you and we praise you for the opportunity we have to worship you and to declare that all glory and all dominion belongs to your son, Jesus. Please forgive us of our sins, for it's in his name we pray, amen. You don't have to dig far into the book of Revelation for the misunderstanding to begin. It starts from the very first word. If we asked a random group of people to define the word apocalypse, I have no doubt we would be greeted with some ominous sounding synonyms like destruction, devastation, disaster, catastrophe. And, And to be sure, the book of Revelation has its share of catastrophic events. But the word apocalypse comes from the, it's derived from the Greek word calypto, which means to hide, to conceal, or to cover. And the prefix apo, which is attached to it, doesn't mean destruction or disaster. Apo means to take away from or to remove from. And so apo Calypto means to take the covering away from something, to to bring a thing out of hiding, to to reveal. And thus the very first word, revelation, means this book is intended to be an uncovering, a revealing. It's to be the exposure of something. And oddly enough, while other New Testament writers use that word apocalypto, in connection with the return of Jesus, this is the only time that it appears in the book of Revelation. You will not find the word translated revelation from here through the rest of the book of Revelation. 
In some way, all Scripture is the revealing of Jesus to us. But in reality, there are truths that are temporarily kept secret, that are not entirely disclosed. If you remember in in Daniel, which is also considered an apocalyptic writing, the prophet Daniel was given visions of the end time and told not to disclose it all. In Daniel 12.4, he's told Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. And a few verses later, after the prophet asks for more clarity, in Daniel 12.9, he's told, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. And so it's, it's not a matter of coincidence that in Revelation 5, we're going to see Jesus, the Lamb of God, removing the seals from a book which reveals the end. Revelation is, is special in this way. Specifically, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, verse 1, verse one says. Some would debate whether that phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, means that this is what Jesus is revealing to John, or whether it means that this is what's being revealed to John about Jesus. But our text this morning is going to show us that both of those meanings are true. This book is the revelation from Jesus and about Jesus. You can see in verse 1, it tells us the revelation of Jesus was given to him by the Father and he delivered it to John. And so this is the revelation that comes from Jesus. But down through in verses 5 through 8, we're going to see just in the introductory passage, three titles for Jesus, three works that Jesus does, the promise of Jesus' return. And as a result, every word of revelation is from Jesus and about Jesus. Now this book has kind of a multi-layered introduction to it. And this morning we're going to try to deal with the first couple of layers of that introduction. The introductions, verses 1 through 8, and it establishes the relevance of Revelation. And ideally we'd work through that entire text in three main points to see how Jesus is both revealed and revealing the certainty of his word in verses 1 through 3, the certainty of his work in verses 4 through 6, but I already know we're going to have to continue this next week to look at the certainty of his return in verses 7 and 8. So this morning, let's just try to deal with the first two, starting with the certainty of his word in verses 1 through 3. The the first three verses outline the order of divine communication that we need to keep in mind as we read this entire book. It says it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. Did you catch all the the links of that chain of events? John starts sort of in the middle of the revelation with Jesus. He says this is the revelation 
of Jesus Christ, but then John works backward and forward on that chain of revelation. He says that God, meaning God the Father, gave this revelation to Jesus the Son, who then sent it by his angel, a word that just means messenger, sent it by his angel to give it to John so that John could show it to his servants. So that chain covers God the Father to God the Son to an angel to the Apostle John to the seven churches which are in Asia all the way down to us today. What Jesus reveals to John and to us includes the plan of God for the future. Yet the relevance of Revelation is not simply that it unfolds God's plan for the future. It's that the future unfolds itself in order to bring glory and honor and dominion to Jesus Christ, who is the focus of Revelation. By placing the emphasis on Jesus, we're not going to be attempting to you know, ignore the history of the world events as somehow that they're uninteresting or unimportant, but simply to show that each of those events is understood through their connection to Jesus the Son. Revelation not only opens that history for us in advance, it also puts an emphasis on the time frame of those events, but not necessarily in the way that we think. Look at a couple of phrases in verse 1 and verse 3. In verse 1, you'll see the phrase, to show his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And in verse 3, it says, keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. How are we to make sense of that? How can our first point be the certainty of God's word when the word says the time is at hand and it's writing to an audience of readers that lived 2,000 years ago? Can it possibly be right? Well, of course, his word is certain and the message is right. We just need to understand what's intended by those phrases shortly come to pass or the time is at hand. Some folks bypass this entire problem with a really appealing simplicity, right? They point out that those words must shortly come to pass could mean that when these events begin to unfold, they're going to snowball quickly so that it wouldn't mean that these, these events will transpire soon, but just that when they do begin to occur, they're going to all happen quickly one after another. But the meaning of the words that are used here are generally understood to be soon and quickly. And there's no reason to avoid that as the meaning. We mentioned last week that the teaching of the entirety of the New Testament is that the last days began with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In Acts, Peter refers to a prophecy of Joel and says that the last days have already begun at the day of Pentecost. And the writer of Hebrews says that in these last days, God has spoken unto us by his son. James, in James 5.9, warns that the judge is standing at the door. And John himself, we've read on Sunday mornings in in 1 John 2.18, he says, little children, it is the last time. So the writers of the New Testament demand that the readers see the return of Jesus as 
as imminent, even while they defend against the complaints of, well, why hasn't it happened yet? Can you believe that? That all the way back in the first century, 2,000 years ago, some were already complaining, saying, well, why is God taking so long? Peter addressed this in 2 Peter 3 when he writes about scoffers who say, well, where is the promise of his coming? And Peter's answer to that is that they are willfully ignorant that God does everything on his own timetable so that, Peter says, the Lord is not slow concerning his promises as some people consider slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The end is going to come on God's timetable, Peter says. And in the meantime, he says God's not adjusting his watch. God's opening his arms. He is now patient. He is extending mercy. He is intent on saving his elect through faith in Jesus. Listen, aren't you glad that God in his divine wisdom didn't respond to the first century complaints and say, well, okay, I guess I better speed it up. But instead, he purposefully has delayed during this time so that all who will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The purpose of Revelation in saying that these things must shortly come to pass or saying that the time is at hand is the same purpose as the rest of the New Testament. It is to sort of intentionally put us under tension so that we live our lives in the light of Christ's return. This is perhaps why apocalyptic writing uses symbolism instead of specifics. Because that symbolism helps us sort of maintain the tension so every generation of believers looks at the things around them and sees that the, God's plan for history is unfolding and they live through the light of Christ's return. So that when we read what this says, we live by the implications of what it says. The word is certain and it's soon. We're we're blessed in that process, John says in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things that are written therein for the time is at hand. I want you to think about this in the context of the book of Revelation first. The message is from the Father to the Son by an angel to the Apostle John and then it is sent to the seven churches in Asia. Well, it's sent how? John's exiled on the island of Patmos. He's he's not going to you know, roll up this scroll and stick it in a Ziploc baggie and swim the Aegean Sea in order to deliver it. He's not allowed to leave Patmos. But visitors could come and go, visiting exiled people. And so, no doubt, a messenger carries this book to the churches that are listed in verse 11. And we saw last week they're listed in an order which is exactly the way a messenger would go down to the road to hit all of those churches. So a messenger arrives, say at the church of Ephesus, and he, he hands the scroll of Revelation over. And one of the leaders of the church of Ephesus 
scans it and imports it into PowerPoint and projects it on the big screen so everybody could read it. Well, obviously that's not how it happened. Even if they could all look at it, many of the individuals in the first century were illiterate. And so the public reading of Scripture is what's being described in verse 3. Within the churches that received this scroll, some would be assigned to read it aloud, right? And that's what John says, blessed is he, singular, that reads. And everyone else would listen to it being read. Blessed are they, plural, that hear the words of this prophecy. That's describing the reading of God's word before the church. So, let me just say to the church here, I want to apologize sincerely for not asking that the public reading of Scripture be part of our Sunday morning worship service sooner. We're fixing that now, but I should have done it a while ago. To you men who are going to find yourself reading Scripture, please, take it seriously. You are engaging in this ancient and sacred act of worship, the very kind of act that we see Jesus himself doing in the synagogue at Nazareth and which Paul commanded from Timothy and which Revelation is describing here. And to the rest of the congregation, public reading is not there just to take up a little bit of time or to, you know, fulfill an obligation for worship. It's for your attention. It's for your contemplation and it's for your if verse 3 is any indication obedience right to keep those things you'll be blessed by it you're blessed to read you're blessed to hear but only if as verse 3 says you keep those things which are written therein John's not saying that generically about all Scripture, but specifically about Revelation or the words of this prophecy, he says. This is how we know that the, the tension that's created by words like the time is at hand or this will happen quickly, must shortly come to pass. This is how we know that tension is purposeful. It is meant to impact our behavior. The relevance of Revelation is not that you figure it out so you can fill in all the blanks about times and dates and places that are going to happen in the future. The relevance of Revelation is that the word of God is so certain that his plan for the future calls for your obedience to that plan right now. Okay, so that's the certainty of his word. Second, there's the certainty of his work in verses 4 through 6. Look at verse 4 with me. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. <clears throat> Listen, I, I can't skip the fact that there is a Trinitarian introduction to this book. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all engaged in this message. God the Father is viewed as having given the message to Jesus the Son. Again, in verse 4, he's the I am that I am, right? He is and was and is to come. It is a bit of a puzzle why John refers in verse 4 to the seven spirits 
which are before his throne. Jewish, Jewish tradition explains this by saying, well, there's, there are seven archangels which serve before God, and they even have a name for each one. But it seems more likely that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. You can see the King James translators capitalize the word spirits because that's how they understood it. Of course, there is only one Holy Spirit, but Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2 references these seven attributes of the Spirit. Or perhaps the symbolism of using seven is to say, well, it's a number of completeness. It's, it's the Spirit in his fullness. But John doesn't take long to get to Jesus the Son because that's the focus of this book. Even folks who read Revelation much differently than I do, will agree that Jesus is the focus of this book. So verses 5 and 6 says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In verses 5 and 6, I want you to see three titles for Jesus and three works of Jesus. In other words, three statements of who he is matched with three statements of what he's done. There are three titles. And in reducing this to three titles, I just want you to know I'm, I'm skipping sort of the obvious one. He is called Jesus Christ, that is Jesus the Messiah. And we shouldn't ignore the uniqueness of that title Christ or Messiah because he's uniquely qualified as the Messiah who fulfills the Old Testament promises of God. But there are three other titles that draw our attention. First, he is the faithful witness. That title fits the Lord Jesus in numerous ways. First off, during his ministry, he was always a faithful witness of the Father. He, he spoke the Father's words. He fulfilled the Father's will. He represented the Father with such care and precision that he could say to the disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is a faithful witness to the nature of God. He's also a faithful witness to the truth. He said in John 18, 37, For this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. That's why when verse 2 calls this book the testimony of Jesus Christ, this testimony is worth our attention because in all that Jesus does and in all that he discloses, he is truthful. In the context of Revelation, though, John might mean something more and a little bit different by this faithful witness term than we would ordinarily think of it. We think of the word witness like someone who testifies in court, right? They're, they're telling the truth. Jesus is a truth teller, and in fact, he is the truth, he says. But the word for witness here is this Greek word martes, and it, and it comes into our English language not as witness, but as martyr. Someone who is put to death for the defense of a cause. That's how this same language, this same word gets used many times in Revelation. And 
chapter 2, verse 10, the church at Smyrna is encouraged to be faithful unto death. In chapter 2, verse 13, there is a man in the church at Pergamos named Antipas who's murdered. And Jesus calls him my faithful martyr or my faithful witness, the same word here. In Revelation 11, there are those much debated two witnesses, and we might not agree about who those two witnesses are, but I think we can agree that they're murdered. They're martyred in the process. I think the death of Jesus fits this title, faithful witness or faithful martyr, the best here, because the next title for Jesus pictures his resurrection from that death. Again, in verse 5, he's called the first begotten or the firstborn from the dead. To say that Jesus is the first begotten or firstborn from the dead is not to suggest that he's somehow the first person who ever came back to life from the dead. That wouldn't be true. There's a, there's a pretty good list of people who rose from the dead before Jesus did. Right? Elijah in the Old Testament raised the widow's son. Elisha raised a different woman's son. There was a man who rose from the dead when they tried to bury him with the bones of Elisha. And in the New Testament, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter, raises the son of the widow at Nain, he raises Lazarus. All of those things happen before Jesus himself rose from the dead. But Jesus is described here as the first begotten or firstborn from the dead because he did what nobody else ever did. He died and he rose from the dead to never die again. So this doesn't mean that he's first in chronological order, but he's first in order of importance. He's first in that his resurrection is greater than all other resurrections. Psalm 89 verse 27 promises, God said, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. He's first because his resurrection is not only greater than all other resurrections, his resurrection is also the basis for all other resurrections. In Romans 8, Paul calls him the firstborn among many brethren. In Colossians He calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation. And in Ephesians, Paul says that even though we were dead in sins, God has quickened us. That is, God has made us alive together with Christ. We need to wrap our minds around this truth. We have been given life, we've been raised from the dead and given everlasting life only because he rose from the dead and has everlasting life. The byproduct of this truth is that Christians aren't just believers in the resurrection. We've been made participants in his resurrection. He is the first begotten of the dead. Not because he's the only one or because he's the first one, but because he's the best one. And all other hope for victory over death is based on his victory over death. So Jesus gets the title of faithful witness. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. The third title in verse 5 is Jesus is Ruler of the kings of the earth. The the King James Version here says, 
prince of the kings of the earth. And that takes just a, a moment of explanation. We think of prince nowadays like prince is the, the king's son. If we were to make a royalty flow chart, we'd put the king at the top and prince is next in line and, and on it would go. But that word prince to the King James translators in 1611 doesn't really mean what it means to us today. Prince was a term for supreme ruler. So for example, as they dedicated their translation to King James, this is how they introduced it. They said to the most high and mighty Prince James, who is by the grace of God, King of Britain. What they mean by prince is that he's the supreme ruler. Now, most other English translations are just going to use the word ruler there, but the King James Version uses prince because this is what it means to them. He's the supreme ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus is absolute, supreme, sovereign. He is in charge. There is an aspect in which the kingdom of God is still awaiting future fulfillment. And we're going to see that when we get to Revelation chapter 20, if we ever do. But Jesus is not waiting to be in charge of that kingdom. This says that Jesus is, present tense, the ruler of all these kings of the earth. Every authority of this world from Kings to dictators to presidents and Supreme Court justices, all of them have only delegated rule. Jesus is in the supreme authority over every earthly authority. We shouldn't ignore the significance of that truth to every generation of believers throughout history, starting with the original audience. Let me ask, how would you have liked to have been the messenger that John handed this little truth bomb to and said, take it over to the mainland? I mean, you've come to the Isle of Patmos, you've checked in with the Roman authorities, you've visited the apostle who has angered the Roman authorities by preaching the gospel of Jesus, and so he's been banished from the mainland. And then you get back on the boat with a scroll in your satchel and you open up that scroll and it starts off by saying that the the emperor and the governor and the military commanders, Jesus is in authority over all of them and he's on the way. And don't forget the emperor Domitian at this time had declared all people must worship him. And this says in verse 6, to Jesus belongs all glory and dominion. Listen, if we believe in Jesus as Revelation describes him, it is going to have a calming effect on our feelings about the world leaders that we see around us. Both good ones and bad ones. When some wicked leader holds sway in this world, it's not going to bring us down because we know Jesus is still in authority. And when some political leader does well and it turns out his opinions match just exactly with ours, we'll be glad, but our devotion and our hearts are still reserved for Jesus, to whom belongs all glory and dominion forever. Now John moves from these three titles of Jesus to give three descriptions of Jesus, right? Three things he 
is, now he talks about three things Jesus has done. Picking up at the end of verse 5, we see Jesus loved us, washed us from our sins, and made us kings and priests to God the Father. Jesus loved us, John says in verse 5. Just let that simple statement sink in for a moment. The creator of all the world and the authority over every nation loves you. John's about to explain how we can know about that love. The love of Jesus is known fully and completely through his sacrificial death on the cross. Just a few hours before being arrested and crucified, Jesus taught his disciples, right? Abide in my love. Greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. There is no expression of love towards you greater than Jesus' expression of love. He emptied himself of the majesty of heaven to be born in the flesh. He lived a life of perfect righteousness that we could not live. He died under the wrath of God for our sins in our place. He, he rose giving us eternal life in the process. This love is only a reflection of Jesus and not of us. This love is not because we're lovable or because we deserve it. This love is directed towards us by grace alone because Jesus is love. John also says, Jesus washed us from our sins. He even goes further to say this washing happened in the most unlikely of cleansing agents, his own blood. Listen, the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament promised that one day God was going to give a a new covenant with his people, a covenant that was different from the one, from the law that he gave at Mount Sinai. This covenant, God said he would, he would write his law in his people's hearts. He would give them knowledge of him. He would forgive their sins so that they would not even be remembered anymore. But Jesus in the New Testament, he taught that that covenant came at a price and the currency that was paid was his own blood. Just hours again before being crucified, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper and he said, look, this bread is representative of my broken body. And then he handed them a cup and he said, all of you drink of it, for this is the new covenant in my blood. It's through the sacrifice of Jesus' lifeblood that our sins are washed away. Although some manuscripts will read a little bit differently here. Some, instead of saying he washed us from our sins in his blood, they will read he's freed us from our sins by his blood. And truly, both statements are right. Whether we think of sin as a stain that has to be washed or as a chain that must be broken, we are set free. We are cleansed and find salvation only in the blood of Jesus. And John said, Jesus makes us kings and priests to God the Father. Don't go buying a crown and scepter just yet. Jesus is king. Back in Exodus 19.6, God promised his nation that if they were obedient, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
Generations later, the Apostle Peter picked up that theme and told Christians, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you should show forth his praises. Jesus Christ is king, and through faith in him, we are brought into the kingdom of God, and we're already declared to be royalty because we're part of God's own family. And now when John says we're kings and priests, or he says we're, we're a kingdom of priests, instead of getting tripped up over the idea of being royalty through Christ, we ought to be stunned with the statement that says we're priests through the work of Christ. Think of the Old Testament priests for a moment. Not everybody was allowed to be a priest. Only those men of the tribe of Levi. And if you, if someone in Israel wanted or or needed to bring a sacrifice, make an offering to God, they had to come to a priest. They could not go to God directly. Priestly work was this work in service of God where they had access to him. But through faith in Jesus, we have been granted access to the Father directly. We've been called to his holy service permanently. So that Peter, in the very same context of saying we're a royal priesthood, wrote, you are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. As royal priests, we have access to God and we are called to a life of service to God. But all this points us to Jesus in order that he would receive at the end of verse 6, all glory and dominion forever. In truth, John's description here contains three specific offices of the Old Testament that, was u- that were used in service to God, showing how Jesus is the fullest representative of each of them. Those offices in the Old Testament were prophet, priest, and king. And yet, here we see Jesus. He is the prophet. He's the faithful witness on behalf of God. He's priest. He's the one who brought the sacrifice of his own blood to atone for our sins. He's king. He is ruler of all the kings of the earth. He is the king of kings. These titles for who Jesus is and the descriptions of what he's done, it seems like when when John's done writing them down, he can't help but just append a a doxology, right? A, A quick statement of praise. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. just a a brief word about that word amen it fits well here because it's a word that means so be it if you can bring yourself to say amen to the truth of God's word you are not just saying I agree but in a sense you're saying oh that's what I want seeing who he is and what he's done there is not a drop of glory or authority for anyone else but him, John says. Amen, and that's what I want. Seeing the certainty of his word in verses 1 through 3 and the certainty of his work in verses 4 through 6, 
leads us to declare that he has all glory and dominion forever. And that's where we're going to have to stop today. Lord willing, the third point, the certainty of his return in verses 7 to 8, we'll look at next week.